Ecclesiastes 12.10 tells us that the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. Hello, my name is Logan Dixon, and it is my hope that during our time together in this podcast, what you will hear will be acceptable words. Thanks for tuning in. Hey there, guys. Welcome to the kickoff of Acceptable Words, and I have with me my friend and one of my go-to pastors, uh, Robbie Willis. Uh, Robbie is pursuing a demon. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, a doctor of ministry, not a demon, as in the spirit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you should clarify that for our <laughs> for our southern preacher <laughs> friends. Um, he is pursuing a demon through uh, AGTS. He has written five books. I, when I introduced him at my church, I said it's gotten to a point where every time he belches, they publish it. Um, <laughs> he is—he has uh, written a book about the River Valley Awakening. That's his most recent one about the revival that occurred in the Ozark area. Um, and uh, today we're having him on to talk about the longer ending of Mark, because I know that he is a advocate for uh, the longer ending of Mark, and I know that he is an advocate for the Textus Receptus in general. So that's what we're going to be covering today. But before we get to that, Robbie, tell me what you are involved. Tell me what you're doing ministry-wise and uh, what you're doing for the Lord these days. Sure. So I have been a pastor with Link Church since mid-2018, spent uh, about four years as a campus pastor and uh, focusing on revitalization and such. And then recently, just in the last few months, I've transitioned into a role as discipleship pastor with Link Church. We've been blessed to see numerous people coming to faith in Jesus over the last uh, few months on a very, very regular basis as God's moving among us. And we want to make sure that we are uh, equipping all those people to to be good, strong followers of Jesus Christ. Um, alongside that, um, my current academic pursuits go hand in hand with what I'm doing ministry-wise. My my doctor of ministry is in spiritual formation, and so again, my focus is on growing in Christ and and how can we take those spiritual experiences that are common to the Christian faith and interweave them into the fabric of our faith so that we become stronger Christ followers. Right. That's a very good, very good. Um, so I've got you on today to talk about the longer ending of Mark. And this is a discussion that I think goes simply beyond. Um, this is a discussion that I think goes simply beyond Bible translations and goes simply beyond, well, why is it? Why is it there? Why is it not there? Because there's 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 two levels. Well, there's a few different levels of discussion in regard to the longer ending of Mark. There is the academic scholastic discussion, which is, was it really in the manuscripts? Was it really there? Um, how you know? Why did the church fathers use it if it wasn't really scripture? Things of that nature. Um, right. And then there's a more uh, base level discussion that occurs in the in the minds of people who sit in the pews every week of why are these newfangled Bibles taking these verses, taking these verses out. Um, and so I'm not really sure where to start on this one, uh, but you and I have both been talking about it. I, it kind of became my, it kind of became my obsession for a little while. 
Um, and then I got you involved in it by sending you a, a ridiculous article that I came across. <laughs> because just, that's what I do. When I get angry about something, I just send it to you so you can be angry with me. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's certainly <laughs> good friendships built out of it, right? <laughs> and, you know, if, if I could just say that the article that we're going to be discussing some today, one of the things that really, um, I guess, frustrated me about it is that this debate is a very old debate around the long ending mark. I mean, it goes back to the earlier church, at least. And it's always been had among brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, it was never a point of contention in the sense of that those that believe in the long ending were saved and those who believe in the short ending were not or vice versa. But the article you sent was was highly contentious, in, in my opinion, and uh, really charged those who accept Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 for anybody that may not know what, what verses we're talking about. For those who accept those verses as valid, it really charged them with perpetuating false doctrine. Um, and yeah. I found myself quoting um, one of my favorite deep thinkers, uh, Captain Barbosa, uh, who said, I am disinclined to acquiesce to your request to remove those verses. Um, so <laughs> you can carry on with non-pirate theology now. <laughs> So the article in question is this one. It is, uh, it is what, what do you do with the end of Mark's gospel uh, by Paul Carter? He is a pastor from Canada, and this was actually published on the, uh, the Canadian edition of the Gospel Coalition's website. And for those of you who uh, don't, already don't like the Gospel Coalition already, you're thinking, well, the, well, the Canadian edition is much worse. And, uh, well, you could be right. But... Uh, in this article, what really killed me, because I, 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 I found this article hoping that it would be some kind of scholastic or well-thought uh, defense of, you know, why it's not actually scripture. Um, but when I came across it, the first words out of the article killed me. And the first words were, I don't own a commentary written in the last 100 years that argues in favor of the longer ending of Mark's gospel, not one. <laughs> that, that statement is such an unscholarly statement, by the way. I mean, I don't own a bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey, but I would not claim that it doesn't exist. You know, so I mean, his his decisions on what commentaries to buy is literally no reflection at all on uh, the current state of scholarship. And really what he's saying is, I don't read people who disagree with me, right. which is the opposite of what a good scholar does, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and uh, he goes on to quote several uh, of the commentaries that I guess he owns. <laughs> uh, Bless his heart. About, about why uh, the latter part of Mark 16 uh, is not scripture. But you, you brought up an interesting point that I didn't quite pick up the first time I read it. And then after you mentioned it, I went back and read the article again. I was like, you know, he's right. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Paul Carr here is being 
is almost accusing people who believe in the longer ending of Mark of, of false doctrine, and he's almost accusing the scribes if the if the scribes did in fact write it write the longer ending he's almost accusing the the scribes of being malicious yes it is a deeply divisive claim that he makes in my opinion in that when you read his article he's referring to a group in the in the early church who he feels are overly charismatic that he really levels the charge that they managed to get Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 placed in the text to try to corrupt sound doctrine with their charismatic ideology. This is completely outside the realm of where these conversations are at. I mean, the, the, the argument is as old as, well, older than, but Eusebius gives advice actually to a pastor who was struggling with reconciling uh, how to teach certain aspects of this. Eusebius actually advised him not to to teach or rather to omit verses 9 to 20. And, and nobody's going to say Eusebius is, is not orthodox. Nonetheless, Eusebius never suggests that there's anything malicious about the inclusion of those verses and simply everyone in the early church believed in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, we yeah. have plenty of documentation to uh, to let us know that the debate about whether to include verses 9 through 20 was not a debate over whether the gifts of the Spirit continued in their day. That was not the conversation they were having. Right. And one of the things you had mentioned when we were discussing this is that Mark's gospel is charismatic in its own regard, apart from the longer ending. Yes. Could you elaborate more on that? It, it absolutely is. So Mark is is written for a Roman audience. It is generally agreed that Mark is writing down uh, the messages that Peter is preaching in Rome. And so it, it's a very action-oriented gospel from the beginning to the end. I mean, we have vivid descriptions of exorcisms and healings and miracles that are being manifested throughout the book, literally from the first chapter all the way through to the end. And to be honest, if we end it with the shorter ending, that would not tell us that... The, the, that, that, that charismatic phenomena should not be expected, it would rather serve as an indictment on the unbelief of the apostles, of the disciples, in light of all that they had seen. Because mm. by the time you get to Mark 16, you have read enough miraculous phenomena that everyone should be believing. And if you're not, then you find yourself grouped with the unbelieving disciples. So removing those verses does not fundamentally alter the message of Christ in any manner as the author of, of this article is, is claiming. It is a thoroughly charismatic book. And when I use the word charismatic, I'm, I'm talking about it, it, is, it is filled with expressions of spiritual gifts, manifestations, miracles, the supernatural working of God. Sure. Sure. And uh, I, I completely agree with that. Um, so why do we even where why do we even have this discussion at 
at all. Like where, like at what point did we, at what point did the, did the manuscripts and scribes stop including the longer ending? Well, I think first of all, from, from my vantage point, I would point out that most of them didn't. And so the, the really deceptive thing about footnotes in Bibles is a person who has no academic background in understanding text criticism and, and these things and is going to come across this footnote that says the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not include these verses. And so without having read the, 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 the larger conversation or being part of it, that can become very confusing. So just to clarify, there are about 1,640 or so Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. And among those, three are missing the long ending. Now, there's a larger conversation outside that, um, copies in other languages, things of this sort, and there are some varieties of endings. And and some of those that do include it have notes in the side that say, that, that acknowledge that some aren't. However, what I've noticed is that while scholars who are against the long ending love to point out that even among some of the some of the, the texts that include it, they love to point out that there's a, a note in the margin that says this was missing. They don't point out that of the two very early manuscripts that disclude it, uh, Sinaiticus includes a note in the side where the copyist is saying most of the manuscripts actually include nine more verses here. That's not the language he uses. And he leaves this blank space to let us know that it, it should be there, but it's not in the version he's copying from. Hmm. So even in, in, in versions it was missing from, it was very well known and very well attested that these verses did, uh, did exist, and they were held in high regard even among those that opted not to include them as Scripture. So just... So well, if you go ahead. were... Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, if if you were preaching through Mark's gospel yeah. um, and you got to, to the long ending, would you even bring it up for your audience? It, it would depend on the audience, first of all. So in, in general, everyday preaching with, with people whom my pastor know, it, it's, not, it's not a matter that I'm even going to raise. If I am in a, a school of ministry setting, if I'm teaching... I'm teaching scholars, if I'm teaching those that are going to primarily be teaching the word of God, then I think it's important to, to understand the conversation surrounding this because mm -hmm. you're inevitably going to be going to be faced with it. But when I have the conversation, I like to point out this. One of the people who quotes those verses is Irenaeus. And if if someone thinks that Irenaeus didn't understand what should or should not have been, in the canon of the New Testament, they probably need to go back and do some some more uh, historic research, I would suggest. So these are not just any names that were including them. And Papias appears to refer to the verses in 110 AD. Um, Irenaeus uh, quotes them in 184 AD. By the way, that's more than 100 years before the first manuscript we have that leaves them out. So wow. it, it's not just about, 
it blurs the issues to suggest that manuscript evidence is the only evidence. We have people like Irenaeus that are quoting the verses in 184 AD, whereas the text that leaves them out is in the 300s AD, right? You have Papias, who appears to make very clear reference to them in 110 AD. These were not just known, they were well known among key leaders in the church whom no one would question their orthodoxy. Mm. Yeah. And so when it comes to when it comes to the issue today, um, many times what we see on a practical level or an everyday level with our congregants, particularly in the South, because I I can't I'm not going to say King James onlyism isn't is not an issue up north, but it's sure. predominantly in the South for some reason. Sure. Um, when it comes to an issue in the pews, where, there, where there's an issue in the pews, many people will say, well, you know, um, this is the Bible I was raised on. And, and the, they fling the accusation against modern translations of Scripture that they're just trying to take out verses of the Bible to alter the message, to alter the, the meaning, things like that. And that's ultimately what you, what you get into. Um, right. And I'll give you an example. I was... Um, I was at a, a gathering. Uh, I was at a family gathering recently, and a, a relative of mine and another and, and another relative of mine were both having a discussion about uh, Bible translations, and uh, they were talking about a certain preacher. And they said, "You know, I used to like to listen to him preach, but then he started using that new Bible, right?" And uh, and the other one said, yeah, I don't see where they come up with this new stuff. And you know, Robbie, in that moment, I could have interjected into the conversation and uh, told them all of the reasons why we have new translations and yep. why it is some some Bibles include some verses and others don't include other verses. But I realized that uh, that conversation would have been fruitless. It would have been a waste of my time. Sure. Um, and so what I what I see on the ground, you know, when I say on the ground, I mean what I see in the everyday with with church people is that to them, the King James has become the standard. Sure. And and any other Bible translation is a deviation from that standard. Right. Uh, and I bring all of that up because that's that's the main conversation that that a lot of people are going to be having with it because, you know, I don't know if you know this, Robbie, but not everyone is academically and is, is academically gifted as we are. <laughs> and and you're, you're exactly right in that a lot of these conversations are not even the ones, the ones that people are having. I, I think the, what's important to understand about this conversation is, is this is, and you and I were talking about this before we went live a lot of the people that are debating this, while I think that the article we're discussing is is device intentionally divisive, I would dare say, um, that's not really the nature of this debate all around. No. On both sides of it, you have people who have a deep appreciation for the scripture and want to make sure that we are treating the word of God with integrity. And that is true of those who believe Mark should have ended with chapter 16, verse 8. And that is true of those who accept 
the long ending as as valid, like you, you and I do. In many cases, these conversations are happening among brothers and sisters who value the scripture. And I think mm-hmm. to frame it any other way is, is disingenuous. Um, I'll just say it's, it's, it's wrong. And so while, yes, I have a deep love and appreciation for the King James Version of the Bible, although I'm not even in the distant realm of being a King James onlyist, I was raised with it. I, I recognize the culture shaping value it's had. But to make this conversation one of King James onlyism is to miss the point somewhat, as, as we know, and we've talked about before, because this debate was happening like 1,300 years before the King James Version is translated. Yeah. And it was happening among people. There are those who believe that the Bible should, that, that it should have, the short ending is valid. And there are those that believe the long ending was valid, both who were suffering, bleeding, and dying for the gospel. Right. right. For whom they were committed fully. They were all in. Uh, I mean, you have Justin Martyr that's quoting uh, that, that's quoting from the, the long ending. But yet you have those that would be able to readily reflect that the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church that are going to think that the shorter ending is is more valid. So to try to suggest that one's more spiritual than the other, I think, misses the point. At the same time, you are right to even have this conversation in some settings is going to make some people pull back and go, ah, you don't really believe the Bible. Um, I would dare say we're only having this conversation because we may be over obsessed with the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, So if you, if you had someone in your church who, if you had someone in your church who maybe was a new Christian or, or wanted to wanted to ha- find a Bible translation that they were comfortable with and that they could read and learn from. Would you recommend a translation that is based off the critical text or the Textus Receptus? I have an acknowledged preference for the majority text type uh, of which the Textus Receptus would be, you know, our, our most well known. Um, I often recommend the modern English version because it it is, and I realize that if some of my scholar friends are listening, they're having a little bit of heartburn from hearing me say that right now. Um, for scholarly papers, I tend to opt for the English Standard Version. But for everyday reading, I do recommend the, the modern English version, especially for those that come from a, a tradition that has an appreciation for the King James Version it values the same texts, but it also values putting things in, in the language that people actually speak in the area where, where I live. Um, there's lots of reasons why I prefer the Texas Receptus, the Byzantine text type, the majority text, whichever these are using over, over the critical text. And that would be a lengthy podcast all of its own, I suppose. <laughs> However, just simply stated there are large, large portions of the church and the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that are in agreement with each other. And I think that if we don't make that point, we're missing a very important point in a day when so many people are prone to want to question the integrity of the word of God already. 
So in the very conversation we're having about these 11 verses at the end of Mark, 99% of all Greek manuscripts agree with each other. 99% of all Greek manuscripts include those verses and 95% of all manuscripts uh, including those from other languages that are that are early include these verses. So while it is a valid conversation to have, people like this article that says virtually all scholars agree, they're just making stuff up. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I get it that it's the sexy thing to say these days. I understand that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean everyone agrees with you just because you want to say that they that they do. And in fact, if we don't forget before the end of this podcast, we'll, we can drop a few good resources that defend the, the long ending. If for those that may want to do some more research on their own. Absolutely. Uh, going back you, you mentioned that you would recommend the modern English version for everyday yeah. read. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've grown to appreciate the modern English version because I knew you, you had started using it. And so I started looking at it a little bit and I had a friend who uh, was a hardcore Reformed Presbyterian. Okay. Um, he, he used the King James Version as his main translation because that is what the Westminster Divines used whenever they came up with the Westminster Confession. Got it. Um, and, of course, he was in the Textus Receptus group, yep. and he had started using the Modern English Version for a while because it was in the same... It was based in the same family. Um, and what I think is really funny is I don't think he knew that the modern English version was published by Pentecostals. <laughs> That's and, funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he was a hardcore cessationist, too. Um, I pointed out to him, I think I had to point out to him that it was published by, by Pentecostals. And I think he laid off of using it after that, but that was hilarious. <laughs> wow. I, I hate to break it to him, but the new Testament was actually written by people that believed in the continuation of the gifts <laughs> Here it is. well. <laughs> Moving on. I just had, I just won. Okay. You gotta love me. I just, I just had just one. Oh, that's funny. That that's like when I told people that Paul was my favorite Calvinist. <laughs> yeah, I have another Calvinist friend that one time we were debating the issue and he said, Hey, let me send you my favorite Calvinist book, and he sent me Job, right? <laughs> and while I'm still going to agree, all I can say is touche. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I won't I won't get too far off into the Calvinist Arminian debate, but there was one time when uh, I'd went with you to an expository preaching conference. Yeah. And uh, you had when you got there, you had to wear name tags. And I don't know if you remember this, but you had to wear these name tags. And I was having trouble putting the, the plastic name tag thing. And and you said, well, you well, you do it just like Calvinism. You shove it right in the right into the text. <laughs> <laughs> I I, uh, I did not remember that, but I I will say good job to that younger incarnation of myself. There, <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that was that was pretty good stuff. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and talk about resources. So where would you, uh, if someone really wanted to dig into this issue, where would you recommend they start? So, um, let me. Uh, I can toggle off the screen for a second and not mess us up. 
So a couple good resources on this, for those that are wanting to dig into it quite a bit, one is written by Nicholas P. Lunn, and the book is called The Original Ending of Mark, A New Case for the Authenticity of Mark 16, 9 to 20. And uh, by the way, that was published in 2014, so well within the last 100 years. Um, <laughs> there is another that was, uh, it's, an, it's an article, but it's, it's a good article written by, by Dr. Bruce Terry, the style of the long ending of Mark. It was originally published in 1976 and it was updated in 2003. And then another is a book that you actually recommended to me just um, yesterday. And I picked it up and read through a good, a good bit of it. And it's called Authentic, the case for Mark 16, 9 through 20. And that is by James Snap Jr. What I appreciate about each of these resources is while they do argue for the authenticity of the long ending, none of them are disparaging toward those that argue the alternate view. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's important, and I know I've mentioned this a few times, it's important to remember that the body of Christ includes people who don't agree with us, right? <laughs> and so uh, even, you know, mine and your friendship, you're, you're on, you know, you identify as a Calvinist for now. And I don't fault you for that because you're predestined to do so. And <laughs> I, uh, I am more on the Arminian Wesleyan uh, line. And if I'm wrong, then, then I was probably ordained to be, um, it, in seriousness, do about it. <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it yet in practice, we're able to worship together to pray the prayer of faith together. Um, to see people healed, to see people come to Christ. And it's important that people people realize that a lot of these theoretical disagreements, while they do matter, they shouldn't become as divisive as we make them sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I think those that want to dig into understanding what's surrounding this text, what what each of those resources I just gave you will do um, is they help they provide a good introduction of the arguments for and against rooting them in earlier Christianity and why these conversations matter, why they've mattered historically. Um, now, I realize that for some, the debate over is the King James Bible the only Bible we should be using is, is a deeply personal question. I would argue that that is not the primary debate that's being had in the larger theological world right now. Um, but it is important even where I live at, and I, I respect that. What I think is very important for people to realize regardless, if I could say it like this, whether or not you include uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, the Bible will still teach that speaking in tongues is valid. It will still teach that miracles, signs, and wonders are a reasonable expectation of those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray through faith in his name. Um, the Bible will teach either way that it is not smart to pick up rattlesnakes, um, <laughs> whether you include those verses or not, but that there is a promise of supernatural protection for believers in the course of ministry as we face the hazards that come our way. Yeah. These things do not change at all based on whether or not we include those verses. And the New Testament will continue to celebrate the importance of believers being baptized in water um, yeah. without regard to those passages. Now, do the passages matter? I would say very much so. And I would say that in times of persecution, 
the early church cited those as evidence that God does show up and protect his people and affirm the power of his name. And, and I think that to, 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 to not acknowledge that reality is to miss something beautiful in the history of the Christian faith. Yeah. When, when Papias is, is writing of how justice drank this poison and another author said he drank this venom that was taken from a snake uh, as as he was fighting for his life for the faith, God supernaturally protects him and it did him no harm. It's difficult to argue that Papias was not referencing Mark 16, 18. And this, this written in about 110 AD is a beautiful devotional reflection, you might say, on how deeply personal these words were to the early church as serving Jesus Christ was a hazard to their very life. And they laid hold on those words by faith. You shall, if you eat or drink any deadly thing, it will not harm you. This was not a parlor trick. This was life and death as they preached Jesus to a to a world that was hostile to the gospel. Right. And for those that valued those words, this is the context in which they valued them. To, to suggest anything else is completely inauthentic. I think. Yeah. That's not what you asked me for. So allow me to pause well, and let me reframe our conversation. No, that's good. That's that's good. That's what I wanted. Um. Because, I mean, I ultimately, I, I mean, like, here's the deal. I know the article that we talked about earlier and that I shared earlier is not necessarily a reflection sure. of everyone who doesn't believe that the longer ending is authentic. Right. Uh, but whenever you get on that extreme side of things, what you're doing is you're allowing your preconceived theological ideas to get in the way of what is what is there in the realm of history mm. um and so like for example this guy paul carter um i'm going to make an assumption i'm going to make a wild assumption right off the bat um that he's a cessationist um, absolutely <laughs> and so what what carter was doing in that article was he was reading cessationism into the very text of scripture and yes. then saying Mark 16, 9 through 20 doesn't belong there because it's too charismatic. Correct. And I would dare say if we could sit down and talk with him, he would also explain to us that the entire book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Mm -hmm. um, and really struggle with Paul saying not to forbid to speak in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. Anytime we bring our preconceived theological conclusions to the text, we're going to abuse the text. And yeah. that doesn't matter if I'm doing it as a Pentecostal that, that wants to read my particular slant into everything. I've heard lots of Pentecostals that would not even read 1 Corinthians 14 because they felt that they were non-Pentecostal texts. And that's the kind of stuff that gives me migraines because <laughs> only a person who believes in the ongoing expression of tongues and prophecy has any legitimate reason to even be debating how to interpret first Corinthians 14. We cannot right. dismiss a, a, a chapter or a verse or a book because we're uncomfortable with what it suggests. That, that's just not valid. Uh, and right. It doesn't matter if I'm doing it or if a cessationist is doing it. We all agree, at least we claim to agree in the integrity of the word of God. 
that that it is inerrant, it is infallible. These are the presuppositions that many of us come to the text with. And so it's really upsetting when you see someone say, well, clearly uh, verses 9 to 20 are a charismatic insertion by people that were trying to prove their own point. And I'm going, wow, I thought it was by those who were bleeding and dying for the gospel of the one who bled and died for them that were just wrestling with the integrity of the text. I mean, I, I actually never would have considered that it was charismatics trying to prove that miracles were still happening. I thought they could have just appealed to dead people walking around alive for that. <laughs> right. I I'm I'm honestly surprised he didn't say that it was shoved in there by by Montanists. Uh, I, I actually think that's a that's an underlying suggestion. I think that's the that's the group he was referencing. Uh huh. And I could be wrong, but that that would be I. You know, I try not to assume too much, but if I'm airing my assumptions, we're on the same page right there. Right. Um, and one of the things that I think is hilarious, and I know this just doesn't have to do with the discussion, but I think one of the things I think is hilarious is when people accuse Pentecostals of being modern-day Montanists because they either don't understand Pentecostalism or they don't understand Montanism. Correct. Because, because if you go back and actually read the history of Montanism, uh, well, that was straight-up heresy because the, you had a dude uh, running around with two women and he was claiming that these two women together made up the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's like, I don't see Pentecostals doing that. Well, you know, I, Jimmy Swaggart back in the 80s, but that doesn't count. <laughs> I don't know a single Pentecostal that would legitimately be okay with what the Montanists were teaching. So when people make that claim, it's it's a straw man argument that I think most of them actually know is is inauthentic when they when they make it. Um, now, one of the, one of the pieces that I would say may be the stronger argument of the article that we've been discussing that I, I said, that's beautiful, even though I disagree with you is he says that if you accept the short ending, that it ends with these words, I'm reading from the modern English version, verse eight, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And so in that article, the author says, in his opinion, Mark ends with an empty tomb. Now, amen. Now I would say that if you include those next 11 verses, the tomb's still empty. It's okay. Jesus didn't climb back in, but right. uh, nonetheless, I am going to say amen to his overall conclusion that there is something powerful about reflecting on the empty tomb without regard to who believed that Jesus is risen, not because Peter later believed he was risen, but because he is risen. And that's one part of the article I can, I can get behind, even though I'm going to ultimately part ways with him. Right. Same. Yeah. Um, could would it be all right if I take just a second and read the latter part of this uh, of this chapter for anyone that may not have yeah. read it lately? Um, right. So verse nine. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. 
when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her and did not believe it. Now, time out. One of the things that Dr. Griffin, who you actually sent me his lecture, uh, mentions is that one of the things that people take aim at is that Mary Magdalene's already been introduced in uh, in Mark chapter 16, and now she's reintroduced out of the one from whom Jesus had cast seven demons. That is very Hebraic to, to do that, mm-hmm. that you'll have an initial introduction and another introduction with more information. And so Dr. Griffin uh, focuses on that, and he, he notes that although... Mark is written to Romans. Mark is nonetheless writing uh, as one who is deep in the Hebrew tradition, as is Peter, and that it may simply be his Hebraisms coming out here that he comes back and wants to to give a little bit more backstory to Mary Magdalene. Uh, Verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Of course, Luke uh, corroborates that story in his gospel. They went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at supper, as he reprimanded and he reprimanded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. John tells us this. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink any any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they will recover. There is no new doctrine introduced here. Right. And so while it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's succinct, it it communicates truth in such a powerful way. It's not an introduction of anything new to the text of Scripture. Verse 19, and the Lord, after the Lord had spoken of them, he was received up into heaven and set on the right hand of God. Then they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. To quote uh, an Anglican friend of mine, Father Daryl Fitzwater. Even if these are not Markan words, they are canonical words. Mm. So there is no reason to reject them as valid. They present no doctrine that is not clearly defended throughout the rest of Scripture. Right. That's that's beautiful. Well, uh, Robbie, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you. It's been fun. It's been helpful. And uh, and I always love having you on the podcast. Um Man, it's always it's always a pleasure. I you 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 uh, you drive me to to think and to wrestle with some things from different perspectives, and I always enjoy that, Logan. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, uh, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, for those of you who listen uh, to the audio, it will be available on Monday. Um, but for now, you can enjoy the video. Um, I'll. So if you don't already, subscribe to the Acceptable Words podcast on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, uh, follow us on YouTube. And I just uh, sent a book off to Lulu Publishers, Lulu Self Publishing. It is my sermon notes over Jude. Um, So there's there's four sets of sermon notes there through the book of Jude. Uh, So be sure to pick that up. It's called Truth at All Costs. Um, Well, I think that's it. And Robbie, it's been fun. It's been delightful. 
Um, I will talk to you later. Have a blessed day. You too.